Hey, y'all, welcome to The Rock Church. My name is Pastor Brian. Uh, I don't handle one button well, apparently, but I'm glad that you were here. Um, anybody, I got any Christian punk rockers in the room this evening? Where are y'all at? Oh, y'all should have been way more punk rock and rebellious than that. All right, Sunday morning will do way better. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Anyways, following last week's verses and the Apostle Paul's charge for us to be the most punk rock and non-conforming rebels in this world today, people who are bought by the blood and transformed and renewed in our minds by the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is now moving into what that practically looks like in the lives of the believer. Today, we are going to speak into two areas that God is working in the believer's lives. That is our humility, uh-oh, and our gifts. So I've titled our message this weekend, The Humble and Gifted. So if you would pray with me, we will get into it. Lord Jesus, we love you. We, we, we thank you that we could come here, that we can sing to you. We can cry out to you, Lord, that uh, it's a beautiful thing when the church comes together to dwell in unity and sing of your praises. You're worthy of all of our life, all of our time, all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our treasures. Jesus, it's all worthless if it's not thrown at the feet of you. We love you. Lord, I pray that this evening, that this weekend, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, Jesus Christ, that your son and your daughters would hear from you what you want to say to them, how your spirit is in them, transforming and renewing them daily if they would just see it, believe it, and respond. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you got your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 12. Verses today are three through eight. If you'd like to follow along in the handout, I gave you a little crafty little thing to follow along and take some notes and add to your journal and all that stuff. But as we begin, the Apostle Paul wants us to consider something, and that's how we think about ourselves. So we start in verse three. For by the grace given to me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking with apostolic authority. He is an apostle set apart for the gospel, preaching, writing scripture, planning churches. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, so that means the sermon's not for your neighbor or your spouse, it's for you, not to think of himself more highly, herself more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with sober Judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, last week, as we saw, what we do, how we live, how we act, how we respond in this world begins with what we think and believe in our minds. And now Paul, three times in this verse, tells us to think, think, think. You can translate, um, what is it, sober judgment. You could actually translate that right thinking. So four times if you want. He's really trying to get your attention here. In order for us to live these sacrificial lives that are set apart and holy and acceptable to God, we must have a right understanding with how we view ourselves. So our first big idea this weekend is we must view ourselves through the lens of the gospel. I want you to pause and think for a moment. How do you feel about yourself today? That's a loaded question, isn't it, right? It may be pretty 
highly, a little self-promoting maybe. Man, I'm awesome. Everything I did today was rad. That post got so many likes. People dig me. (laughs) Or maybe you're more of the self-depreciating. I'm fat. Nobody liked me in high school. No likes on that post. Nobody digs me. Oftentimes, we find ourselves puffed up and proud because of how we see ourselves or how others see ourselves, or we find our value and our accomplishments and success stories while others at the same time are beating themselves down, feeling shame and regret of their past, defining their value based on our looks or our money or comparison to others. Both of those are the wrong way to think. What Paul is saying is when we are to not think too highly or lowly about ourselves, what we're really being warned about is pride, aren't we? And I'm not saying it's not okay for you to be like, man, I did pretty good today. I'm proud of myself. Or how in the world my kids listened to me. <laughs> I'm not saying that's wrong. That's some, some pride. That's not what we're talking about. I'm also not saying it's wrong for you to encourage somebody to say, brother, I am so proud of you. It is so encouraging to see what... Those are all beautiful things. That's not what we're talking about, okay? What Paul is bringing to our attention is how we may intentionally or unintentionally be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We're talking about pride of self-righteousness or maybe feelings of superiority or arrogance towards other people or proud or I'm a good person or I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that person and the things that they do and the things that I do, so at least I'm not as bad as them, right? All of that stuff that Paul was critiquing and saying, that actually pushes people further away from the gospel early in Romans, you remember that? We're talking about pride. You see, pride prevents many believers from resting in the gospel just as much as pride prevents many people from coming to rest in the gospel. So this isn't a charge to the unbeliever to stop being so proud. This is a charge for the Christian to stop being so proud. God warns us about pride quite a bit in Scripture. I threw down a couple for you right there. One of the greatest pitfalls in the Christian life and in our friendships and in our marriages and gifts and service is how easy it is to get carried away by our own pride. So it's no surprise that God's word is very clear throughout scripture and right here is warning us about the dangers of pride. I give you some verses again. You could go look through every one of them. None of them are encourage you to be more prideful. When God speaks, you read these verses, it's very bold. He says, I hate pride. The Lord hates the proud man. Pride is an abomination, is his sight. You will not find stronger language for sin in Scripture than that of the sin of pride. And it's scary when you read these verses. It's pretty sobering. When you read these verses about what God says about your pride, your pride is as if you have a red target painted on you and God's arrow is just ready to strike you down. When you read about pride and you read about how God feels about pride, he is opposed to it. God is seeking to crush the pride in the unbeliever and he's equally seeking to crush the pride 
in the believer. When you go to these verses, man, it's kind of sobering because it's sin. Pride is sinful. It's contaminating you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, pride is like a spiritual cancer. It just eats up. It destroys anything good and your common sense. So it's no coincidence, right, that the first thing Paul says, all right, living lights in view of the gospel, renewed, transformed mind, living sacrifices, the first thing we've got to work on is y'all's pride. That's a hard thing to spot in our own lives, if we're honest, right? Because just as dangerous as pride is, and as often as God's word speaks against it, it's really hard to spot in our own lives, isn't it? And again, notice in verse three here, this is a direct statement towards me, towards you. This is not a word. It does not say, tell your spouse not to think too highly of themselves. Paul is saying, I'm telling you and your spouse to not think too highly. Like in Romans 12, verse three, this verse in the NLT, it says, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. I like that. When it comes to diagnosing the sickness of prides in others, we are the best spiritual doctors in town. But when it comes to diagnosing it in our own lives, we don't even realize we're infected with it. And I know you're asking, well, Pastor B, what do I do? How, how, do, how does thinking of myself more highly than I ought to show up in my day-to-day -day life? I'm so proud of you for asking. That's great. That's humility. God's working. For time, I'm not going to unpack an entire sermon on pride, um, but I will for a moment. I will borrow from the great fiery Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, back in 1742, which was like, Josh, how many years was that? 200 and something? 50? A lot of years ago. Uh, he wrote this essay hundreds of years ago called the un, on, on, on Undetected Pride. And I think it's what he says still rings pretty true today. Um, so I'm not going to quote directly from him because reading Puritans kind of hard, but I've kind of dumbed it down for all of us. I borrowed and reworded some of it, so you're welcome. So how does thinking of myself more highly than I ought to, or how does my pride hide itself in more subtle sins? I'll go ahead and do this little exercise with you. Beware pride hinds behind. Um, and if you really dare, I would encourage you on the back, you can fill this out. And I put some boxes there and you can give yourself a little score and see how well you do at the end of this. Okay. Good luck. <coughs> Where is pride hiding in your life that you may or may not be aware of it? This one, the first one would be the fault finder. This is the person who, instead of filtering out and confessing and recognizing they've got their own mess, they're really good at highlighting the faults in everyone else. As a pastor, a lot of marriage counseling and conflict within the church, usually one or both parties come to the table and they've just got a Rolodex of stuff that the other person does wrong. Meanwhile, they're, they've never, they don't stink, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <coughs> There's the scorekeeper, which is very close to the fault finder. This is the person who's kept track of all of your sin, all of your error, but they don't keep any track of their own. And uh, they love grace, man, I've been forgiven, but boy, do they not want to forgive anyone else. Or 
when they get pulled aside and they get corrected or they get asked about something and it knocks them off balance and they get that defensive Taekwondo stance and they start going for the jugular and they're like, well, no, I only said that because of what you said. That's the scorekeeper. How are y'all doing so far? Two for two? Uh Uh-oh. There's the pride that hides behind the harsh spirit. This is when you look down at someone or you, oh, scoff. And I can't believe they're still doing that or that sin that bugs me. They messed up. That's it. No second chances for them. What's scary about that is that when all of a sudden I now have a higher standard for someone earning or deserving my forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, that should frighten you. There's the phony the big fat phony who lives a certain way and puts on a mask and pretends to have all of their life put together. They've never had a problem, no issues whatsoever, and they just really want people to believe something about them that's not true, right? Or we act a certain way around someone, and then when they're not around, we say lots of stuff about them that's kind of, ha, get it? I mean, because look at them, right? There's the know-it-all. This is the person who knows everything about everything, even when it's something um, you didn't ask them about. (laughs) They just step in and they're letting you know, hey, I just wanted you to know, get ready. I'm gonna tell you something that you didn't know that you need to know, and you're welcome. I've arrived to teach you, right? This is the person who's got an opinion on stuff you didn't ask for. They cannot wait for you to finish talking because what they have to say is more important. How you doing? (laughs) Horrible test. There's the pride that hides behind the neglector. This is the certain person. This is the situation where we look at other people and we go, oh, that's not really kind of people I do life with. Or, oh, I'm not really thinking we're, we don't really hang out with people like that. Or my circle of friends really tight and I don't think anybody could jump in. I mean, if somebody jumped into what we have going on, it would kind of damage it. And I don't know if what they have is actually valuable to what we value and what we offer to each other. So there's really no room at our table. They don't dress like me also, like they hike and they do outdoor stuff. And, and you know, like, I'm just not, that's just not my type of people. So when we look at verse three, I think we would have to agree, hmm, maybe I do struggle with pride more than I think. In all of these ways, we see that behind the scenes, there's the sin of pride that ultimately says, I'm better. I'm far superior. I'm top shelf, supreme over that person. Me, me, me. Now, why did I decide to throw all of us under the bus so early into the sermon? Well, because that was our first verse. Um, But we'll also see in the verses to follow that pride shoots every one of us right in the foot that prevents us from ever being able to be a part of what God has called us to be a part of. Humility is the kryptonite to our pride, but the pride destroys any unity any gifts, any service that I have to offer, pride will crush it all. But I got one more for you. The pride that hides behind the self-loather. In addition to not thinking too highly of yourself, I think it's worth being stated, we need to flip it and reverse it from the other side. Not only are we to not think too highly of ourselves, but also not too lowly of ourselves. Now, what's the self-loather? And how is that related to pride? They're on the same team. 
They're both telling you something that's not true. The self-loather is the person who sees themselves only in the worst light. I'm fat, I'm ugly, nobody liked me in high school. This is the person who sits from the position that says, nothing you can say will ever change how I feel about myself. My feelings are more valid than anything else. And you can't correct me because I'm not going to listen. This is who I am. Take me or leave me. You have a better chance of winning the lottery than getting me to listen and maybe think differently. You see, equally damaging to the sin of pride is the sin of self-hatred. Both are not sober thinking. I like that Paul says sober. So whenever I feel, this is just me, you don't have to take it this way. But whenever I think I'm thinking too highly of myself or I'm thinking too low of myself, because I'm good at both, I like to think of handing a microphone to a drunk person. You ever been around a drunk person? They don't say very wise or true things, or they're always inflating themselves, right? Like, I'm king of the world, fight me. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's, why did she text me back in high school? Just throwing up, hugging the toilet. Like, oh, you should not have a microphone. Sober thinking, that one's free, you can have that. Whether I'm building myself up or heaving in the toilet because I hate myself so bad, both are not sober thinking, and the gospel rescues us from both. And I also add this, do you know where self-depreciation ultimately comes from? Satan. When I listen to and when I believe the lies that devalue me, that contradict what God says about me, that is absolutely demonic. So the sin of pride finds its commonality with Satan, And so true does the sin of self-loathing because it's believing that what God has said is wrong. What God says about me is wrong. Isn't that the first line in the Bible? Did God really say, can you really trust God? Is what he says valuable? Does God really love you? So you see they're on the same team. Satan wants you to believe both because both pull you away from the truth. But the kryptonite to both pride and self-hate in Satan is this transformed mind that believes the gospel. And it takes humility to view yourself through the lens of the gospel. Think about yourself, right? Paul says, think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, what does this mean? Okay, now we're gonna start moving along, okay? Paul is saying that we look at ourselves through the measure or the standard according to the gift of something that God gave us. That gift is faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is a trust, a conviction, a believing, a confidence in who God is, what he has done, what he is going to do. And God here, his word is telling us that the gift of faith to even believe God is a gift. Any ounce of faith that you have is a gift from God. Do you believe that? To believe who he is, to believe what he has done, it's a gift. That includes believing what he says about you. Or I'll say it like this. The right way to view yourself is in view of the cross. Because when I come to the foot of the cross, I get a right view of myself. There's nothing that crushes your pride and boasting and self-loathing than the view that you get at the foot of the cross. Looking at the Savior who lived and died for me, when I see that it is my sin, my pride that held him there, That gives me a proper view of myself, doesn't it? 
at my very best and at my worst, I am still a sinner who has been given so much grace and mercy. And so now when I look at myself through the lens of the gospel, looking up at the Savior who lived and died for me, now I recognize that everything in my life is a gift. Everything that God has given me is a blessing. You hearing me? Faith is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Mercy from God is a gift. Eternal life, gift. I did not earn any of that. You did not earn any of that. But mercy was given. Beloved, true humility is living in response to what God has done and who God says you are. Look at some of these verses. This is who God says you are. This is right thinking. I am loved by a holy God. I am a new creation. I am free. I am chosen. I am forgiven. I am a saint. I am never alone. I am a child of God. All of these things are true for those who are in Christ Jesus because of his mercy. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was dead to sin. I am now alive in Christ. I was headed for destruction. Now I'm headed for eternal glory. I was once a child of hell. I am now a child of God. I was once sin filled. I am now spirit filled because I did something to earn it because of his mercy. When I have a right and sober understanding about myself, how will pride be anywhere to be found? So moving on, Paul tells us to have a right view of ourselves because we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. Value the unity in the body of Christ. Verse four and five, for as in one body, we have many members and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul loves this metaphor of comparing the church to a body. It is all over in the New Testament. Um, I don't have a lot of time to unpack these. So take a picture of that because I'm about to move on. Okay. <laughs> I will say this. When Paul talks about us being a body this many times, it's something that we should pay attention to, right? And I won't spend too much time, but I did preach on this in more detail a couple, two years ago. We did a series called The Church, and the first sermon on that, I literally spent quite a bit of time talking about what it means to be a part of the body. I would recommend you go check that out. But for time, I'm not going to. And I will just say that this metaphor uh, of a body. It's strong language because Paul is communicating to us that when we have a right thinking about ourselves, we see that we are more valuable when we're a part of something that's not just about me. It's called the body. What practically means for me is that as a body, if a body part decides to not work properly, we got a problem, right? I can't function properly if I'm not a part of the thing that I'm supposed to be a part of. This is what Paul is telling us here. There is something so rich and valuable for us if we're thinking rightly, if we're thinking rightly, 
that I'm a part of this body. And what I'm a part of here is unlike anything that the world has to offer me, right? Something here, I'm more valuable here. Something here, there's truth and there's purpose and there is identity, man. The whole world is searching for everything, just dying, trying to find their purpose and value and identity in something, so many things. And Paul is saying here for the Christian, we have an identity now with right thinking, with humility. We recognize I'm a part of something bigger than myself. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. That's an identity. That's who you are in Christ. Now, this does not mean we are all the same, right? Identity in Christ does not mean uniformity. Paul is saying one body in Christ, individual members of it. You see that? So not clones. We're not all supposed to be eyebrows. That's a weird body. <laughs> There's individuality. There's uniqueness. Just like an elbow is not told to be an ankle and the hair on your head is not told to start being your back, which for some of you brothers, as you're getting older in age, your hair seems to be relocating. But when you think about individuality in the church, different people, passions, different abilities, different gifts and experiences and different upbringings and histories, but yet there's one body in Christ, there's still this common one anotherness that we have in Jesus. Like what on earth could get a dude like me and Pastor Josh aligned on the same team? On paper, everything we do, it's like we're diametrically opposed to each other. But in Christ, though we are very different, God is not calling me, now you need to be more like Josh. Josh needs to be more like me, which I would appreciate. <laughs> There's a oneness. Josh has talents and gifts. I don't. And those bless me. Does edify me. I need Josh to be Josh in the body for in order for this body to work properly. But when we see each other like that, oh, that person's not just quirky and get away from me, but that person's a little strange, but the Holy Spirit must be in this person because he's here. And so I'm going to believe that. And wow, I must be a part of something bigger in myself because the world is like, nope, you have to act and talk and be uniform, do everything we say or get out of here. Canceled. You're not a part of what we're doing. And Christ, that's not the case. You're different, man. Come on in. We need you. In Christ, we are a part of the body and therefore more valuable. Or to look at it in the negative, you will not value the body if you do not believe that you are an integral part to it. If you are not valuable to it. And that brings us all the way back to what Paul just said in verse three, right? That's where your pride or that's where your self-loathing is going to destroy the wrong thinking. If I think I am more valuable somewhere else or I don't belong here or I just don't fit in here, I don't have any value here, you are not seeing the body rightly. You are not seeing yourself rightly, and you will see no value. You will see this is not a place to treasure. This is not a gift to you. And you won't stick around. You'll bounce, but you're not thinking rightly. I like to say it this way. I've always said it like this. It's like you and the local church are like coals on a fire. Together, we light you up, poof, 
We're on fire, baby. We're doing awesome things for the Lord. We're fulfilling its purpose. We're cooking, man. Ultimate potential. If you were to grab a tong and you grab one of those coals and you put it on the ground and you just let it sit there apart from the fire, what happens to that little guy? He dies off. Burns out. That is the person who thinks that what they have to offer the church or what the church has to offer them is invaluable. They're better without it. That's the Lone Ranger Christian. But when I'm a part of the body, I, it means that I recognize, oh, wow, I'm dependent on these people, man. Like, I need them to flourish, to meet my full potential. If God is in them, his spirit is in them, and he's in me, I need to be a part of what the Lord is doing here. There are things that you do that you contribute that bless me, that edify and build me up and my family up. And likewise, I do things, I don't know how, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are members of this body that love and depend and are built up by me. So that's the right view of ourselves. Not too high, not too low, but through the lens of the cross. And then when I believe and I understand that I belong to a part of this church, this body, then I'm on fire. This is where we go next. What you offer to the local church, call this a gift. What you offer to this body, to me, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, is a gift. <laughs> so we've said we need to view ourselves through the lens of the gospel. We need to value the unity of the body of Christ. And now your last big idea this weekend is we need to fuse your gifts to build up one another. <laughs> and you're thinking, homeboy spelled that wrong. I did. Because if you notice, your first two points began with a V, and I couldn't figure out how to make this one start with the letter V. <coughs> so I solved it. Views your gifts. Every time you come to Romans 12 now, you're going to think about spiritual gifts, and you're going to go, I need to views my gifts. You're welcome. Thank me in 10 years. Paul is saying that you and I, members of the body, we have spiritual gifts. Where are we at? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So we'll get to gifts in just a minute. Hold on. I want you to notice the connection from verse 3 and verse 6. You notice in verse 3, we were told, I want you to remind you, it was just a minute ago. I know you didn't forget. But in verse 3, we were just told that faith was a gift from God. God gave you a gift of faith. And now here in verse 6, God has given us gifts for the good of others. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Cool. All right, God, you've given me gifts. What shall I do with them? Paul responds, great question. Use them. Okay. What are those gifts? Paul lifts off seven. Here we go having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So now first, this is not an exhaustive list on all the spiritual gifts. 
You can go to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 4. I even think 1 Peter 4, I think Petey talks about it a little bit. But when we come to Romans 12, this is the list of spiritual gifts that usually get the most glanced over because it's not as exciting. It only mentions prophecy and all the other ones. We're like, well, those ones aren't as cool. And 1 Corinthians is like miracles and healings and tongues. And we're like, yes, let's get on Twitter and debate and argue over that all day. Or in Ephesians where it's more like administrative, pastoral, apostleship, all those really fun things that we love to talk about. Paul doesn't really mention any of them here, and so it kind of gets looked over. And that's not, we shouldn't do that, right? I'm not saying that any gifts are better or worse when we see that every gift is for the local church. But Paul here isn't as in-depth as some of the others, and that's fine. I'm not going to honestly spend any time unpacking what these do and do not mean. So if you are looking to argue about that, the two of you, there's an app. You can download it. It's called Twitter. You'll find lots of people that want to argue with you on there. Have fun. Good luck. Let me know if you ever get encouraged. That's all besides the point. Paul here isn't so much trying to get us amped up about different kinds of spiritual gifts that we can have and we can't have and how you're going to use them. And he's just like, no, 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 no. He's just saying, hey, guys, right thinking, living sacrifices, humble yourself in view of God's mercy. You are part of the body. God has given you faith. That is a gift. He's given you gifts. That is a gift. Not for you to flex in the mirror and stare at, but to use them for the sake of the body. And so one thing I do want you to notice, whatever the gift may be here, if it's prophecy or service or teaching or exhorting or generosity or leading or mercy or in the lists in 1 Corinthians or in Ephesians 4, this one's really cool. In all of these lists, I want you to notice that the triune God is the giver of all of these gifts. It's really interesting. If you go to Romans 12, like we just read in the NLT, we're speaking of God as Father giving us these gifts. You go to Ephesians 4, we see that the giver of these gifts is Jesus Christ, the Son. And then we go to 1 Corinthians 12, we see that these spiritual gifts are given by God, the Holy Spirit. Right there, I would love to spend all of our time unpacking this. Every good and perfect gift I have ever received is from the triune God. The God who spoke in the universe bursts into existence, says, he sees me, he sees you. We just sang that, to you I matter. And he showers us with his love and his grace and these beautiful gifts. Second, God has given us the gifts for the purpose of building up this body or this family, having gifts that differ. We have different gifts. Different doesn't mean bad. It just means different. Use them. Ephesians 4. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body. So that is the point. That is the purpose of why God has given us gifts. They are not for us to stare at ourselves in the mirror and just flex. That's not the purpose. We are to use them. This is the word of God speaking to you, Christian. There is not one believer in this room that does not have the Holy Spirit, that does not have gifts, spiritual gifts. So the application is use those gifts to build up the body. But now how do we discern what those gifts are? I can't 
diagnose everybody. If we had a lion in the pastures and we just, we're not doing that. (laughs) I would also say, Paul's given us some diagnostic questions right here, right? We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, and we can go to Ephesians 4. Again, these are not all complete lists, but as you're reading those, some things are probably going to start jumping out. You're like, oh, that sounds like me, or that kind of really sounds a lot like Larry. You'll start noticing, oh, wow, these spiritual gifts I have, I'm doing them. I don't even realize them, and these people are blessing me. It's wonderful. And I could suggest get online, do a spiritual gift survey. Sure, whatever. That might just discourage you more than my sermon. But I'd just rather suggest you live, you think rightly, like what Paul is saying here in this text. Man, if I have a right view of myself, verse three, right, humility, and I have a right understanding that I'm a part of the body, verse five, and I have a right understanding that everything I have been given from God is a gift, verse three again, and that I'm a living sacrifice being transformed and renewed by the power of his word in verse one, right? If I, and I am believing this about who I am and that I'm to give these gifts to others to bless them, that's right thinking. I think if you look at these verses and you obey them, you're going to see what your gifts are. In humility, you can ask yourself, what do I, what do, I do for others? Or what about, <coughs> what, do I, what do I enjoy doing for others? What are things that I do that aren't burdensome? I find actual joy in serving or doing this for that person. Or what are the things that you notice going on in the church world or things that burden you or your heart breaks. And when you see things going on, you can't just sit on the sidelines. You're like, I have to jump in. I need to do something. When you consider those things, I think you will find out that your spiritual gifts have actually found you. Or some other questions you can ask yourself is, what is something you regularly do? Cheerfully, notice that in the verse, that meets the needs of others. Or what, maybe, what do people often thank you for doing? That may be your spiritual gift. So when we read these verses, it kind of seems like Paul's being a little redundant, right? But it's important. If you notice, Paul is saying something like, whatever the thing is, just actually use it, right? When you look in verses, these gifts here, for example, like if there's a gift, there's always a recipient to whatever that thing is. Like if there's someone teaching, right, that means that there's someone that needs to be taught, right? You get that? Whether it's your three-year-old in the back room or it's in your small group Bible study, it's at the coffee shop or it's from the pulpit, there's a need. Somebody needs to be taught, so use it. Or if someone is contributing, they see the needs in the church, someone needs some help, whether it's financially or situationally, and Paul's saying, then use it, do it, right? If there's mercy, if you see someone in need of compassion or empathy and someone to hold their hands and cry through the grief, Paul's saying, do it. But you may still read these verses and go, man, none of these sound like me. I would just encourage you to think for a moment. I want you to think about spiritual gifts that may be flourishing and happening in your life, your everyday life, in your homes and in the local church, and you may not even be seeing it. You see, we get so distracted looking at those big things. Man, I want to see the miracles. Yeah, me too, but there's a miracle happening right now, and I'm not even paying attention. Maybe it's your teaching, right? Maybe with, with, with your kiddos or at church or in your small, maybe, maybe 
There's a way that you understand and you can unpack things and teach other people in a way that makes sense and your brain just works and, like, and it just blesses other people. That's a gift. But you leading and serving your family, that's a gift. Maybe it's your encouragement. Are you that person that knows how to make me feel like a million bucks? That's a gift to me. Maybe it's your hospitality. You love bringing people into your home, right? That, that's a gift. Maybe you can play some sick riffs on the guitar. That's a gift. Maybe you make a mean meatloaf <laughs> or bread. Maybe it's your willingness to help and clean up the mess that nobody else has even noticed. Maybe it's your willingness to answer that phone call late at night when the person, all hell is broken loose in their life and they have no one to talk to and you're like, 2 a.m., never been a better time. Let me talk to you. That's a gift. Maybe you're always the first to sign up, to send a mail. We get those meal baby things. I'm like, oh, cool, time to send a meal. And by the time I get there, y'all have already filled it up. I'm like, dang it, man. Maybe it's your prayers, man. I got, I got some brothers and sisters that when they pray for me, I feel like I'm floating. You know people like that? You feel 10 feet tall when they're done praying for you. Maybe it's your faith in a hopeless situation. You're that person when that person calls you and everything has just gone derailed and there's no light at the end of their tunnel. You're the person who just doubles down on the hope and rests and reassures them of the truth. Maybe you're the mama who sees the tired mama and you say, hey, why don't you bring me your babies? You go take a nap and disappear for a while. Those are all gifts happening all over the place. Do you notice it? Do you see it? When I mention these things, do you see people popping up in your head? You start going, oh, wow, maybe I've just not been paying attention. Or maybe I'm really distracted because I want to see the big things. That's a big thing. Those are all big things. I can comb through this room back and forth and point out countless people in countless ways that they have blessed me and my family's life, given me their time and their faith and their love and their gifts to this church. I hope you could say the same as well. But again, I think often we think about spiritual gifts and we get so lost, focusing and hyper-focusing on all the big ticket stuff. Like, man, prophecy, what's that? I wanna do some of that. Or tongue, what is that? That's wild and crazy. I wanna see some of that stuff. Miracle, like, of course, yeah, I wanna see all of that stuff. But am I so focused on what I don't see or what I don't have or what I, nothing's, that I can't even pay attention to what's actually happening in real life in my context? That's not even Paul's point. And what happens when we start getting blinded and distracted by those things we miss out on what we're actually supposed to see, what's happening around us. So to bring it all home, if you're not already catching my drift, God's word is very clear here. Your spiritual gifts aren't even really about you. Talk about humility, right? I've read a dozen commentaries on these verses, and there's one common theme from all these cool dudes who really love Jesus and love their Bible. Not one of them is about ultimately you, which sometimes can be really contaminated with some yucky sex of Christianity, right? Like prophets and people, just, they're saying lots of yucky stuff and really they end up just getting rich off of folks who are just kind of naive. But if you notice, a true biblical understanding and context would tell you 
oh, my gifts aren't even about me. It's for others. The Lord has given you gifts because he loves you. Yes. But he's given you gifts for the sake of the body because he loves his church and he cares for her. And he's created you for good works. Yes. When he saves you, in addition to everything that we've been reading through Romans for the last year, we've been ransomed and redeemed and forgiven and justified. We're born again, new hearts, new desires, new minds, new creations, new spirit. And equally true here, God has given us gifts, different, unique, spiritual gifts for the sake of the church. Every single one of these gifts that you possess have eternal significance to the Lord. And so he's saying here, use them. Because in the family of God, who you are and what you bring to the table, if you view that rightly, you will see that that's not insignificant. Your gifts matter. Your influence, who you are, matters. You, your gifts, are not more valuable somewhere else. You are most valuable when you're a part of the body. But how can I be valuable? How can I be a part of the body, a part of the body? So if you've got the gift of teaching and preaching, or laughing, or crying, or praying, or discipling, or mothering, or big brothering, or it's serving, or hand-holding, that is a gift to the family of God, a spiritual gift. That is why your life and your gifts matter to the church. Last week I said the church is where you are going to find the most punk, rock, rebellious, non-conforming to this world people on this planet. And this week I would add, the church is also where you will find the most humble and gifted people in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of grace and the gift of your faith. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room right now under my voice, whether online or in this room, that you would help us to not see ourselves more highly than we ought to. Lord, that's humility. And Lord, we thank you that as a good father, you're warning us about pride that hides in our lives and you want to purge it out of us. It's contaminating us and our fruitfulness and our value in the body. Would you help us to see what that is today? And Lord, would you help us to kill it, to destroy it, to see ourselves rightly through the lens of the gospel? Lord, I pray for the unity in this church that the men and women, the brothers and sisters under this roof would see that we are very different. There are some people in this room who are not my flavor. And Lord, I know there are a lot of people in this room. I am not their flavor, but God, you say we're united together. We are united in one body. That's who we are. So Lord, I pray for the unity in this church. And I pray God for our gifts. Whatever those are that you've given us, you know. Would you help us to see what those are? And would you help us to respond by using them for your glory and for the love of your body. And all God's children said, amen. amen.